Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Helen Cowie about her book titled Victims of Fashion, Animal Commodities in Victorian Britain, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, which... Honestly, this book has answered questions I have had for a very long time, mainly why, how, with what sorts of consequences did Victorian women, especially in Britain, wear so many things that come from animals? Um, Dresses made from alpaca wool, tortoiseshell combs, all sorts of feathers, seemingly everywhere in every part of the outfit. What was happening here? Why was this such a big deal? And what were the consequences of it? So I found this book absolutely fascinating. And Helen, I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast to tell us about it. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you, Miranda, for the very kind introduction. No, I'm very pleased to have you. And can we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. So so my name's Helen Cowie and I, I teach a research history at the University of York in the UK. Um, I've been working on the history of animals for over a decade now in different shapes and forms. Um, so I started um, in my PhD looking at the history of, of natural history. So this meant focusing primarily on, on dead animals in museums and looking a lot at um, the process of taxidermy, which was a bit grisly. Uh, and I particularly focused on um, the Spanish Empire and, and museums in, in Madrid and, and beyond. I then shifted to look at the history of zoos and travelling menageries. Um, and rather tangentially, that's what this project grew out of. Um, so at one point, while I was looking at sources, at least supposedly on the history of zoos, uh, I stumbled across an article in The Times about a man who tried to smuggle alpacas out of Peru and to take them to Australia. Um, I couldn't make any use of that at the time, but sort of shelved it as something to, to come back to. Uh, and eventually this led me to, to look at alpaca wool and to think about efforts to acclimatise alpacas in Britain and Australia uh, in the 1850s and 60s. 
at the same time, um, I was also reading um, the RSPCA's um, monthly magazine, The Animal World, again, looking largely for cases about um, traveling menageries, cruelty to animals in, in performances. But I also kept coming across these articles about women's fashion, um, particularly concerned with, with seal skin, um, which, which came from fur seals in, in the Pacific and was worn in, in the form of jackets and gloves and pelisses. Also, so-called murderous millinery. So this was feathers, which were, um, as Miranda said, very widely worn by women in this period. Um, and these things kept coming up. And again, I kept kind of shelving them and thinking, well, what shall I do with this? And eventually, um, and not as smoothly as I'm presenting it here, I did come up with the idea of looking at um, animals as, as fashion commodity, particularly in, in women's fashion, and some of the kind of ethical dilemmas um, surrounding this. It's fascinating to kind of hear the different pieces coming together, having seen the finished product and being like, ah, we did find out about the alpacas and smuggling. Um, so we will obviously get into some of that as we go. But I think given in some ways how different this context and culture is to what we have now, it's worth spending a little bit more time just kind of painting the picture of what exactly was being worn by whom We've each mentioned a few examples, but could you tell us a bit more about how sort of middle class Victorian women in 19th century Britain, what were they actually wearing in terms of animal commodities? Of course. And I guess the thing to flag here is that before you get kind of synthetic material, so sort of synthetic dyes, synthetic um, um, forms of fur, um, synthetic kinds of perfumes, almost everything that women and indeed men, and we can talk a bit about male fashion as well, but almost everything they wore did come either from animals or from plants in some shape or form. So you know, your average middle or upper class Victorian woman, as you mentioned, she might have worn a dress made from alpaca wool. This was often blended with other materials such as a silk or cotton. She might well, as I suggested, wear a, a sealskin jacket. These were particularly po um, popular towards the end of the 19th century. Um, Many women, of course, to, to maintain the kind of body shape that was fashionable in the period, would wear a whalebone corset. Um, she might use a tortoiseshell or ivory comb to brush her hair. Um, she might very likely wear some feathers either on her hat and also maybe more, um, more outrageously on her dress or on her shoes. Um, there was one woman who allegedly went to a ball wearing a dress trimmed with 800 dead canaries, which is, is pretty ghoulish um, from our perspective. Um, Beyond what she might have actually worn, she might have played a piano, um, which would have had ivory keys. These were a very popular kind of sign of bourgeois gentility in this period. Um, she might well have um, had a pet, which, which could have been something traditional like a cat or a dog, but it could also have been something more exotic like a, a monkey or a parrot or a tortoise. Um, so really, almost every kind of animal product was, was used for women. And indeed, things like animal perfumes were used as well, particularly in the early part of the 19th century. Musk, for example, um, and civet um, were very popular perfumes, as was ambergris, which, which comes from Wales. Um, and both women and men in the early part of the 19th century uh, would use bear's grease, which was the fat of, of bears, as a kind of hair conditioner, um, so, so almost everything, essentially, from an animal in some form or another was used on, on the female and, and indeed the male body in, in this period. Now, that's a really fascinating list. I mean, really kind of covers every part of the body, every aspect of clothing. But as you said, before synthetic materials, everything would have been from animals or nature in some way. So what is new or significant about 
the fact that men and women are wearing so many animal products in this period? That's a good question. Um, and I think it's largely about the volume of, of what is being worn and also who is wearing it. So obviously animal commodities weren't new in the 19th century. Before that, all kinds of animal products had been used in, in pre-industrial societies. And some of these were traded over long distances. So I guess some of the most famous examples will be things like silk, um, which were brought um, to Europe from China across Central Asia, pearls as well, which came from the East and West Indies, things like beaver pelts as well that were procured from, from North America in, in the 18th century. So all of these things had been used before. What's new in the Victorian period, though, is, is firstly that you get faster transportation um, which in the form of railways, steamships, and that means you have larger quantities of things like feather and wool um, being brought over ever longer distances. Um, and you also have contact with, with regions that perhaps haven't been in this sort of the sphere of British traders before, thanks to imperial expansion and, and the growth of trade. Um, you also find that because you've got shorter journey times, certain products can be brought, perishable products, things like meat, um, so New Zealand lamb, Argentine beef, these can come over quite long distances in a way that they couldn't before. And this is thanks to, to new sort of technologies such as, as canning and, and refrigeration. Uh, and this also clearly has implications for live animals, so things like monkeys and, and exotic birds. I think the other thing I'd flag, though, is that these kind of animal, I suppose we call them luxuries, really, um, are more widely accessible in the 19th century. Um, so in the early modern period, exotic animal commodities tended to be used by quite a sort of privileged elite. Sometimes their use would be, be regulated by various kinds of sumptuary laws, which, which sort of said that unless you were upper class, you couldn't wear silk or you couldn't wear pearls, for instance. That changes um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And also you find that goods are cheaper in the wake of the Industrial Revolution due to new sort of manufacturing processes. And people have more kind of disposable income to spend on, on these goods. So what that means is that the upper and indeed the middle classes and sometimes also sort of servants and artisans can afford to buy these products, if, if not firsthand, then at least secondhand. Um, and I guess the final thing I'd stress is that you start to get sort of seasonal fashion emerging in the 19th century. So whereas fashions might have changed more gradually over the course of years or even decades, from sort of the 1870s, every season there's a new fashion and novelty kind of becomes more important than quality in many ways. So one commentator talking about the sealskin industry in 1912 says that people do not pay for what is best they pay for what fashion demands. If the fashion should demand baby seals, they would be taken, whereas usually it was adult male seals. So you've got kind of a, a greater range of animal goods being traded over um, greater distances and in larger volumes than, than had happened ever before. And arguably, the whims of people are also changing more quickly. So there's, there's increased demand. Mm. No, that, that's, I think, all good things to flag um, to make sense of, especially I think the scale is what really got me. Um, and I think we'll get into that when we look at some of the different animals. Given this context now, um, I'd love to ask you kind of a question I was, I found very striking. I think it was a very effective method of starting the book. Um, you start the book with the Great Kangaroo Debate of 1894. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is and why you start with this? 
absolutely. Yeah, it's a slightly strange way to start the book because I don't focus primarily on, on kangaroos within it, but I thought it encapsulated a lot of, of the themes of the book. So the kangaroo debate uh, kind of kicks off in 1894 and it, it starts because a journalist publishes an article in the, the contemporary paper, The Standard, where he suggests that kangaroos should be acclimatised in England and farmed there. Um he gives some of the benefits of doing this. So he suggests that um, kangaroo hide would produce excellent leather, according to him, for making things like boots and gloves. And he also suggests that kangaroo meat tasted very good. So according to him, the thighs taste like reindeer meat uh, and the tail makes a rich and most delicious soup, as he put it. Um, so he also thinks, though, that this project could be useful because apparently kangaroo numbers are dropping in Australia itself. Um so by bringing kangaroos to Britain, you might help to kind of forestall their extinction. What then becomes interesting is that various other people also write to the standard in response to this article, um, giving their sort of ideas about the pros and cons of whether you should or shouldn't naturalise kangaroos in Britain. Um, and you get a variety of answers here. So, so one writer who claims to be a glove manufacturer, he's not in favour of the idea because he doesn't think kangaroo skin is very good for making gloves. So he thinks it's the wrong texture and it's also the wrong shape. Um, another commentator thinks it is a good idea, but he doesn't think that kangaroos are going to survive um, the kind of wet climate that you get in Britain. He thinks they'd be okay with the cold, but not with the damp. Um, a third writer is more positive, though. Um, he once tried a tin of kangaroo tails and he thought they were excellent, equal to a good game pie. So you have this kind of variety of, of opinions. You also then get this other couple of um, contributors who basically get into a massive spat about the relative qualities of Australian cuisine as a kind of a side issue to this. So one writer, James Trubridge Critchell, suggests that the reason that kangaroo meat hasn't really been tried in Australia is just because the diet there is really boring. So he alleges that people just um, subsist on a diet of beef and mutton washed down with copious libations of tea. Uh, but then this prompts another Australian to say, actually, the diet's very good and just as good as anything in England. So you get in, down this sort of rabbit hole about, about Australian cuisine and identity and, and patriotism. Um, ultimately, it's worth saying that Australians are not, um, ca kangaroos are not naturalised in, in Britain. Um, a few individuals come over and perform in, in zoos and circuses. There's, there's quite a famous boxing kangaroo called Jack that tours Britain in 1892. But there's not a widespread market for kangaroo meat or leather. Nonetheless, I thought that this vignette was quite interesting to start the book because it does as I suggest, encapsulate a lot of other issues going on with the animal products that I do look at in more detail and that, that do catch on. Um, so firstly, I think it, it kind of shows this desire for exotic luxuries. British people and, and others in this era are always going out thinking of oh, this animal that we've just discovered. We could make this from it. We could use it for this. It's a very sort of utilitarian approach to the natural world. So kangaroos kind of fit in with that idea. There's also as I mentioned, the idea that actually because of this process, kangaroos are being exterminated and, and depopulated. So part of what um, the writer is trying to do is to sort of um, reverse this process by naturalising these animals in England. And this idea of kind of relocating animals um, in order to preserve them is also something that crops up in some of the other examples I, I look at. So people talk about doing this for alpacas, um, ostriches, even fur seals at one point, and, and African elephants. So all of these ideas kind of get, get connected. And also you do see um, new technologies coming into play here as well. So the fact that someone had tried tinned kangaroo meat was because um, tinning is a technology that's employed and it can be transported from Australia. 
And finally, you also see in that sort of discussion about the merits of Australian cuisine, the kind of more localised knowledges that were forming around animal products and how people sort of disputed where you should farm particular animals, um, how you should consume them with kind of hopes that their particular region, for instance, might profit from from doing that. And you find this with other animal products too. So, for instance, Sheffield is very involved in the production of ivory knife handles. Um, Saltaire near Bradford is where alpaca wool is produced. And this sort of shapes the identity of these places as well. So that's why I sort of decided to start with the kangaroo debate, even though the actual kangaroo product kind of fizzled out and didn't, didn't come to much. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Mm. No, it's a it's a very effective opening um, for the book and obviously for the interview because you've now mentioned a whole bunch of things that I'm like, oh, yes, let's talk about that and that and that. So um, picking one of them to start with, I think the feathers really are perhaps the most um, known still today or the most visible often because we have period dramas and they're pretty hard to ignore the feathers. So I'd like to start with the murderous millinery um, and particularly ask you about two of the birds that you focus on, the egret and the ostrich, because I was going in kind of expecting to, you know, these look different, but I was kind of expecting a similar sort of story about how many birds were killed and why it was bad and why people used all the feathers. And yet I was fascinated to read that actually the stories seem quite different so why? That's a good question. And you're right, they, they do have at least different outcomes if, if similar beginnings. Um, so, so yes, so in the case of the egret, um, this is, I suppose, the most, most tragic story, really. So egrets produce these beautiful tail feathers. Um, and they only produce these in the nesting season, so when they're having chicks. And for that reason, they were often referred to as, as nuptial feathers. Um, and these were very much valued for, for women's hats and also various other kind of bodily adornments. Um, the problem with egrets is that in order to harvest these feathers, you have to kill the birds. And as I've said, because it's happening, happening in the nesting season... Um, you're also effectively killing the chicks because they they will starve to death once the adults have been been killed. So it's all a bit bit grisly. Um, 
This produces two major problems. So one is sort of ecological. Um, egret colonies are being wiped out by overhunting. This is particularly notable in, in Florida, where um, the egret trade largely begins, although egrets... Um, different species of egrets live, live globally. Um, I should say the egret is a kind of heron. Um, second problem is that the slaughter of egrets involves a lot of cruelty, um, as I've said, because chicks are starving and the birds are caught in, killed in a pretty cruel way. Uh, and what this means is that the egret kind of becomes a sort of course célèbre for, for bird protectors. Um, for example, um, William Dutcher, who is a member of the Audubon Society, a bird protecting society in, in America, he produces a pamphlet on, on the egret, um, the snowy egret specifically, and he paints this really emotive picture of a sort of starving chicks um, that are clamouring piteously for food that their dead parents can't bring them. And this is illustrated with sort of ghoulish pictures as well. Um, so that's partly why the egret is, is interesting. The other reason that I found the egret story particularly interesting is actually because of the lengths to which people in the military industry go to actually defend the use of, of this bird. Um, and they engage in, I think, what we basically today call greenwashing to try and justify using, using egrets for this purpose. So when they're confronted, for instance, with claims that egrets have been kind of exterminated in Florida by the millinery trade, um, one milliner called Charles Downham, he denies this. He suggests that actually not many egrets ever existed in Florida, and those that were there have been exterminated just by urbanisation and other processes, not by hunting, which, which isn't true. Similarly, faced with sort of allegations about the cruelty of hunting egrets, um, the millinery trade kind of shifts tack. So it alleges um, in the late part of the 19th century that, yes, they used to be cruelty, but they've changed now. So one thing that they've started to do is to use what they call artificial egret feathers. So these are fake feathers. They don't involve killing any birds. The other thing they claim is that egrets are now being collected, uh, egret feathers are now being collected in, in Venezuela in northern South America. But they allege that here no cruelty happens because the egrets just molt their feathers and then local Indians go around and kind of pick them up from, from the ground. Um, they also even suggest you get kind of egret farms where egrets are being sort of naturally reared just for their feathers and they're plucked when they're, when they're ripe effectively. So, so again, no cruelty. All of this is proved to be a lie. So a lot of the fake feathers turn out either to be genuine egret feathers or feathers of other endangered birds. Um, it's not true that egrets molt their feathers or certainly not in the quantities you'd need um, to supply the millinery industry. And there are no egret farms. Um, so one ornithologist called Herbert Brown, he goes to see a supposed egret farm in, in Arizona at a town called Yuma. And he finds out that there is, there is one egret there, uh, but this is a pet at a local hotel. It's, it's not part of a farm. But nonetheless, because you've got all these lies surrounding the production of egret feathers, some women believe it's it's okay to purchase them because they are being um, obtained humanely. So this does kind of push the trade and, and make it continue. So that's egrets. Ostriches kind of start with a similarly grim picture, but it, it sort of gets better. So ostriches until the 1860s were also hunted for their feathers and they were killed. And people were starting to worry that, again, ostrich populations might be, be extinguished. What then happens, though, is people do start to actually successfully farm ostriches. And various new technologies assist this, so notably a kind of incubator for ostrich eggs, which allows them to process ostriches more, more quickly to rear more birds. As a result of this, the ostrich industry doesn't kill off the ostrich. And one thing that I found really striking is that 
bird protection societies, so again, notably the RSPB in Britain, which, which is founded to counter so-called murderous millery, and also the Audubon Society in the United States. Both of them explicitly condone wearing ostrich feathers. So they kind of always say the ostrich accepted when they're giving out these sort of prohibitions of what, what women shouldn't wear. While ostrich farming doesn't involve killing them, though, it is worth noting there are some kind of doubts raised about the sort of well-being of the birds. So in particular, there are quite a lot of concerns about whether plucking ostriches is actually cruel. So some people think not. Um, so one writer, the vegetarian Anna Kingsford, she explicitly advocates wearing ostrich feathers and says that it's better than wearing seal skin, for example, which involves killing a seal. And she suggests it's just like shearing a sheep. It doesn't cause any pain. But other commentators are a little bit more leery on this and that there is some suggestion that people may pluck ostriches too early. They pull out the feathers rather than cutting them um, and that the bird may be kind of traumatised by um, the plucking process. And there are reports that suggest you, know, you kind of had to put an ointment on your ostrich after a it had been plucked because it was injured. So I guess I'd suggest that ostriches, they do definitely escape extinction and actually they're, they're sort of helped to breed by the domestication process. But arguably you could see that they sort of suffer some of the issues that maybe affect other farm animals, um, sheep or cattle, um, today. So it's kind of a different, more industrialised process, but a bit of a contrast with the the egret. Mm. No, and an, an interesting one, because there isn't kind of a clear 100% good, 100% bad, right? There's multiple things happening here. Um, I'd love to pick up for my next question, the idea of the Audubon Society, the conservation elements of this whole debate, which not coincidentally are very much ramping up at this time. So if we look at that, um, particularly through the lens of seal skin, what are some of the kind of key elements of this debate around animal conservation that we can see in the late 19th century? Absolutely. Um, and sealskin is quite a good way of looking at this because I think you see different different approaches to what, what conservation is, what it should be aiming to, to obtain, and also what are some of the, the challenges of it. So as I've suggested, in the case of sealskin, um, sealskin is used for, for women's jackets, for things like gloves, for things like purses. And um, this, this comes from fur seals, which are largely um, reared in, in the, off the Pacific coast of America, um, specifically on a couple of islands called the Pribilof Islands in, in the Bering Sea. Um, and in order to actually obtain this seal skin, it's, it's really obtained in two ways. Um, so people from the US, specifically local Aleuts, people from the Aleutian Islands, um, they cull um, what are called bachelor seals, so young male seals, um, on the islands in a process called the seal drive, um, which is arguably cruel, but it's quite focused. You know, you only kill a particular type of seal. Um, other seals are killed at sea in a process called pelagic sealing, and this is mostly done by um, Canadians, so sealers from British Columbia. And this is a lot more indiscriminate and a lot more um, ecologically damaging because you can't sort of select which seals you kill. If you kill a female seal, then like with the egret chicks, um, her young will likely starve. And most female seals are also pregnant as well. So you're going to be killing about three seals for, sort of for the price of one. And some of these seals are never even caught. They, you know, swim away injured. Um, so by the end of the 19th century, again, people are starting to worry about the sustainability of, of sealing. And they kind of come up with ways of, of protecting um, the seal herd, particularly people in the US um, who are very concerned about maintaining the industry. And there's a bit of tension here between the US and Canada, which translates into the US and, and Britain because um, British Columbia is, is a British colony at this point. 
what you then see then are, I guess, some of the, the challenges of how you actually preserve a species like the fur seal. So I guess the first thing is obviously this is an animal that, that migrates over long distances and people didn't necessarily even know where it went at different stages of the year. So trying to protect an animal that didn't respect human sort of borders is a challenge because you might say, you know, within a certain distance from the coast of the Pribilovs, you cannot kill the first seal, but they then swim beyond that and get killed. So that is an issue. And obviously this is something that applies to migratory birds as well. And even things like elephants, which aren't going to adhere to sort of colonial boundaries. So it kind of flags up the need for international cooperation if you're going to preserve this animal. And this is something that does ultimately happen in 1911 with the the Pacific Fur Seal Convention, which basically compensates um, Japanese and um, Canadian sealers for for not killing the animals at sea and, and completely bans pelagic sealing. Another thing that you kind of see in this is the role of science as well in, in informing debates about conservation, which, again, is something we see in other other um, animals as well. Um, so partly to better understand the first seal, various U.S. expeditions go to the Pribilov Islands and study them, try to work out at what point, for instance, the, the young seals become independent and don't need their mother's milk, try to estimate the numbers of seals, do all kinds of, of sort of science to understand their diet and migration patterns. Um Notably, though, you do get disagreements between the scientists, which, again, impact on the kind of conservation measures that are taken. Um, So one US scientist called Henry Elliott, he thinks that actually the seal drive that's happening on um, the Pribilov Islands, this is also bad for seals because it damages the fertility of the males while they're kind of being driven over long distances. Um, But another scientist, David Jordan, thinks it's actually fine and therefore the seal drive should continue, but only pelagic sealing should be banned. So you get these sort of disputes um, taking place. And also, debates over sort of the legal status of the seal so you know one US um, uh, agent called Edwin Sims at one point suggests actually attaching these kind of metal tags to the seals um, with the word stamped on them property of the United States Um, but other people then say you can't do that because these are not domesticated animals unless you feed them or treat them as cattle you can't claim them as property so all these kind of complex debates kind of play out ultimately I think the first seal case is interesting because I would argue you see sort of three different approaches to conservation and um, animal exploitation kind of going on. So firstly, one approach, which I think is pretty strong, uh, and maybe the dominant one at the end of the 19th century is, is what I'd call a sort of fairly utilitarian approach. So this is basically seeking to preserve the first seal so that you can go on exploiting it. Um, so people who promote this view, and Jordan, um, David Starr Jordan is, is a key proponent, they sort of suggest that actually it's fine to hunt the seal as long as it's done sustainably. And actually, they even suggest ways of kind of improving upon nature to increase the seal population. So, so Jordan, for example, suggests sort of blowing up some cliffs to to kind of increase the beach that seals can haul out on, and sort of changing the topography of the rookeries to prevent young kind of seal pups from being crushed by the older males. Um, and another um, more sort of utilitarian approach comes from the Commissioner of Fisheries called George Bowers, um, who even suggests creating a kind of orphan asylum on the Pribilovs for, for pups whose mothers have been killed and raising them by hand in effect. Um, so this is really talking about almost domesticating seals and treating them like a herd of cattle or a forest of trees. And these are both kind of metaphors that Jordan explicitly uses. In contrast to that, you get a kind of second approach 
which is maybe more idealistic. So this, this approach, which I refer to as a sort of conservationist approach, this seeks to preserve animals kind of for their own sake and sort of for posterity. So the rhetoric here is much more about human stewardship over animals and wanting to maintain them um, simply because they're important and you want to pass them on to future generations. Um, so one um, commentator called Professor Harold Heath, for instance, he remarks on the sort of show of mammalian life that you see in the seal rookeries and says that, you know, it would be a shame um, if this were to disappear and the seal were to meet the same fate as the manatee, the sea otter or the buffalo, which in this period is a kind of iconic um, example of what humans can do in, in terms of destroying nature. So there's more kind of emphasis on, like I say, stewardship and caring for animals and just wanted to preserve them because rather than to, to use them. And lastly, I would suggest there's also a sort of welfareist angle to this, which again qu comes up quite nicely in the sealskin debate. So one person who represents this is a guy called Joseph Collinson, and he publishes a pamphlet um, in the early 1900s complaining about the cruelty of the seal industry and it contains these sort of allegations of seals being skinned alive and all kinds of grim stuff happening and he therefore suggests that in order to prevent seals from being cruelly treated um, effectively a sort of government inspector should be sent to the Pribilof Islands to make sure that as he puts it seals have protection from wantonness in their slaughter and this kind of mirrors concerns going on in, in Britain at the period about slaughterhouses and how cattle might be being mistreated and things like vivisection as well so I'd argue you've got these sort of three approaches to conservation one about just sustaining an animal so you can keep using it one about preserving it for its own sake and one actually worrying more about the suffering of individual animals rather than the survival of, of the population and all of these to some extent continue to this day. I was actually, I think, most intrigued by that at how similar some of these debates and positions were to what I was familiar with today. So tracing them all the way back to seals and Alaskan islands was fascinating. So thank you for taking us through that. I'd like to now turn to um, a topic that you mentioned right at the beginning, one of the initial things that interested you in pursuing this, um, alpacas and alpaca wool. You talked a little bit about uh, the idea of bringing kangaroos to Britain and naturalising them there, but really the drive to do that with alpacas seems to have been quite a big endeavour uh, to bring them to Britain and to other British colonies. Can you tell us about kind of why there was so much interest in this and what are some of the imperial economic complexities that this debate highlights? Yeah, absolutely. So alpacas kind of become popular, alpaca wool becomes popular in Britain in the 1830s, really. Uh, the broader kind of geopolitical context for this is that um, Spanish America, specifically Peru, has become independent um, in the 1820s. And before then, Spain basically had a monopoly over um, all the goods that it traded. You couldn't trade them outside of um, Spain and its empire, although there was a lot of smuggling. Um, but after independence, a lot of kind of British merchants descend on Spanish America, um, naturalists and soldiers and sailors, all kinds of people arrive in the region and start to become more aware, aware of its potential products. Um, it takes a while for people to get, get used to alpaca wool. Um, the kind of, and this may be kind of an apocryphal story, but it's suggested that British people become interested in alpaca wool when a bale of it is delivered to, to the docks at Liverpool. And the woolen manufacturer, Titus Salt, um, from Bradford, he discovers this bale, 
is quite interested in it and ultimately manages to sort of adapt his machinery to process this wool. So you start from the 1830s to get increased demand for alpaca wool. It's used to make all kinds of items, things like dresses, shawls, cravats, um, umbrella linings even. Um, and it can be blended with other materials, as I mentioned, things like silk and cotton um, to make things like dresses as well. So this becomes a material that British people are very interested in. Um, so originally, this material is being exported from um, Peru. It's mainly um, it's grown by indigenous um, uh herders um, who then will collect the wool, they'll send it to the city of Arequipa in the south of Peru where there's a lot of British merchants and it will then be um, exported to, to Liverpool primarily and then a lot of it's processed at Salter outside Bradford. The problem is that, at least in the early part of the 19th century, the quantities of wool aren't enough to, to meet the growing demand for it. So this kind of gives rise to the idea amongst several British people in, in different contexts of trying to effectively take living alpacas out of Peru and acclimatising it, either in Britain and people think Scotland or Ireland might be the most appropriate place for this, uh, and later on in, in Australia as well, which is obviously a British colony at this, this point. Um, so this gives rise to various schemes to actually um, remove alpacas. And as I suggest in the book, this relies on all these kind of complex colonial networks that are starting to exist. Um, so you've got increased shipping between Britain and, and, and South America in this period, and it's steam shipping as well by the mid-19th century. Um, you've also got various kind of British bankers and other people in, in the Americas sort of bankroll these, these schemes. Um, a guy called William Walton writes a book about how to domesticate the alpaca and why people really should do so. Um, and there's also an Irish soldier called John O'Brien who's um, gone out actually to to fight as part of the armies against the Spanish, um, but ends up hoping to sort of send alpacas back to, to Ireland, particularly his home county of, of Wicklow. Um, most famously, though, and most significantly, a guy called Charles Ledger, um, who is the one I sort of alluded to in my, my opening, um, he's a British wool merchant in um, in the south of Peru, collecting both sort of sheep's wool and um, alpaca wool. And he comes up with uh, this idea to actually transport alpacas to, to Australia. Um, as I've mentioned, this, this becomes a smuggling issue. It wasn't initially, but after 1845, the Peruvian government explicitly bans the export of alpacas. And this is partly to keep a monopoly of them. It's also partly because it was very unsuccessful to export alpacas to Britain in 1842. Um, in which, sadly, almost the whole cargo of alpacas dies. Uh, and this is because they put some guano, um, which is a kind of fertiliser made from bird excrement, on the bottom kind of deck of the ship and the alpacas above, and they sort of died from the, the effluvia. Uh, and there was a lot of opposition to this and anger, apparently, in Peru, leading to the ban. So Ledger, therefore, has to kind of export alpacas out of Peru in a kind of very devious way, going through um, Bolivia, Argentina, and ultimately Chile, and then shipping them over to Australia. And he, he sort of succeeds in doing this, but then the project it kind of falls apart due to sort of lack of interest in Australia itself and various various errors that, that he's made. I think also perhaps what no, what's notable about this, so is some of the kind of colonialist attitudes that are underlying a lot of this, this project. So the British don't just want to improve the, the quantity of alpaca wool, but they sort of think they can improve the quality. Um, and 
it, this is very much the same process as you get with trying to appropriate other um, other um, kind of natural raw materials. So stuff like Chinese tea or Brazilian rubber. The British all want to sort of nick it and, and grow it in their own colonies. Uh, and you do get this sort of rhetoric of, oh, we could improve alpaca wool. So the Acclimatisation Society in Melbourne sort of accuses the South American Indian of being the most unimproving of races of mankind and sort of suspects that if you treated alpacas like you treat sheep, which are increasingly being being bred a, a sort of more specialised breeds in the 19th century, you could improve them. Like I said, it doesn't actually work, but it does illustrate all these sort of more complicated colonial connections in this period. Absolutely. Um, and I think it is really interesting to compare it to things like tea uh, that we might be more familiar with and we might not think of as having an animal element and going, hang on a second, this is happening all over Britain's empire. So thank you for explaining that one to us. I'd love to ask um, about animals that are valued or were valued at the time, not for parts of them, but for them still being alive. So can you tell us about kind of, if we're talking about exotic animals being pets, what kinds of animals were sought after as pets in this sense and why? That's a good question. And yeah, it was slightly nice at the end of the book to think a little about living animals, although sadly some of them don't live for, for very long. Um, so yeah, Victorians like pets and keep a wide variety of animals um, as, as companions. So obviously some of them you'd expect. So dogs are really popular. So are cats, although more from the mid-19th century, because before then they're mostly seen as just like killers of, of vermin. Um, you also start to see more exotic breeds of dogs and cats being imported as well in the 19th century. Um, so things like Afghan hounds, Pekingese dogs become very popular um, towards the end of the century, and things like Siamese and Persian cats as well. Um, Victorians also, as, as various other people have shown, like to kind of use native wild animals as pets. So things like songbirds and squirrels that were just captured. Um, and hedgehogs were also perhaps a surprising hit in the period. Uh, and this was, again, partly because there was a utilitarian aspect. They were, they were valued for eating bugs in, in people's gardens. Um, when it comes to the more exotic species, which is what I really focus on in the chapter, um, the most popular are parrots generally from for, for the, the bird um the bird population uh, and within the african gray parrots are, are the most popular so one um dealer claims to be importing about eighty thousand of these birds every year which is a huge quantity and as we'll see quite quite damaging to the, the bird populations back in africa you also have more kind of amazonian parrots things like macaws being introduced and and things like cockatoos from australia as well um people also like things like songbirds particularly canaries which are actually domesticated um, and, and bred um, in, in Germany and Italy in particular, but also Norwich has a big sort of canary breeding um, community. Um, when it comes to mammals, I think the most popular are, are monkeys generally. And you get all different species of monkeys ranging from macaques to capuchins to, to marmosets. There's a bit of a sort of craze for particularly small monkeys in the early part of the, the 20th century. Um, but you also have some weirder animals as well. So you see adverts for pet bears that people are um, wanting to sell, things like um, mongoose, raccoons, lemurs. Someone even advertises a, a four-year-old alligator that's been, been kept in Yorkshire um, in a glass tank. So all kinds of species and things like goldfish as well become quite popular. Um, People want sort of different qualities from these animals, I think. Um, so for monkeys, they're looking really for entertainment. Um, monkeys kind of have this reputation of being quite mischievous, which which they are, although in some ways they're, they're really inappropriate pets, I, I should stress. Um, 
but you kind of see this in adverts for them. So people talk about wanting a monkey um, that, that can play with children, also that won't bite is always a bit critical. Um, and someone advertises this monkey that apparently you can you can dress in dolls' clothes and wheel about in a perambulator, which I'm not sure was, was great for the monkey. Um, for marmosets, as I suggested, the smaller the better. Um, so people keep, I keep finding these adverts for marmosets, basically saying how many marmosets you can fit in a pint glass, which seems to be kind of the measure of, of marmosets. Um, so someone advertises two marmosets that are so small they can both go in a pint pot. So it's really kind of a, a fashion accessory in, in a different way. Um, and parrots, of course, people wanted them because they could talk and they could mimic. And again, you have lots of people advertising the kind of words that the parrots um, could say. Um, Often, though, as I've suggested, a lot of these animals don't actually live for, for very long. So although this is a slightly more positive um, form of keeping animals than perhaps just, you know, using their skins um, or their wool, um, there is also quite a bit of, of premature death, particularly amongst things like parrots that, that really struggle in, in, the, in the climate in, in Britain. So it's, it's not entirely a, a happy story. Yeah, definitely. I don't know when when you've got things where you're measuring live animals with pint glasses and saying don't bite for animals that you know bite. That's part of what they do. Um, I'm not sure how happy that story is, but it's certainly an interesting one. I'd like to ask you next about um, sort of, I guess, in a similar way. The book starts with the story of the kangaroo debate. I found this almost the bookend towards the end of the book, um, a story about Mrs. Tracy. Can you walk us through kind of who is Mrs. Tracy? What, why is she in your book? And what does this tell us about how debates around conservation, fashion, trends are progressing um, into the 20th century? Yeah, so Mrs. Tracy, I, I don't know a great deal about her. I only really know about this letter that she's, she's written to, to this periodical called The Animal's Friend in 1899. So she is she is a female, she's a, a middle-class woman, a consumer of animal products. And in this letter, though, she is really trying to explain why she, she wants to give up wearing seal skin um, jackets. She doesn't like it. She's been kind of convinced by seeing some of the literature on, on the cruelty of, of using these products. But though she's quite keen to sort of renounce animal products that, that involve the death of the animal, she also is a bit conflicted. Um, she insists that, you know, she, she really needs something to keep her warm um, on cold days. And, you know, she's, she, she's far from strong. If she doesn't have a nice neck wrap, she's going to, going to become ill. Um, she's tried various other products, but she also doesn't like them. So she's tried ostrich feather boas, but she says, you know, in damp fogs, they just get ruined. Um, she's tried various woolen scarves, but she thinks they're ugly and unfashionable. Uh, and she's now complaining she's got a stiff neck as a result of all this. So what she's doing in this letter is appealing to other readers of this magazine saying, you know, what should I wear? What's a good idea? And again, as with the, the kangaroo debate, other people write in and suggest, you know, these are suitable replacements for um, seal skin. So someone suggests using um, wool produced on, on the Shetland Islands in very kind of fine knitted styles. Someone recommends using lace or silk. Someone recommends a material called crinkled chiffon, which I think is more of a, a synthetic material. And someone recommends another more synthetic material called seal plush, which is designed to kind of imitate um, seal skin. And as well as suggesting materials, 
what I found particularly interesting in this is that a lot of these women also sort of reflect on their use of particular animal products and why they are or are not acceptable and what are their kind of boundaries for using certain animal commodities. And I found this quite quite interesting, partly because it made me reflect on some of my own sort of animal consumption choices. So one writer, for example, um, who just gives her um, initials as FH, she actually says, you know, it is okay to wear furs, but what you need to do when you get your fur is you need to look inside it and you, you just see if there are shot holes from where the animal was killed. And she actually says, if you see a shot hole, that's a good thing because that means the animal was shot and it died quickly rather than kind of perishing in a trap. So that's sort of talking about, you know, I guess how the animal dies affects whether you should use it or not, how quickly that happens. Another writer again, also says she doesn't want to wear seal skin items in her wardrobe. That's not okay. It's cruel. But she then also says, but, you know, if, if you're just killing a seal for its oil, um, which was largely used um, for, for, for burning, for heat and warmth, although it was actually used to treat dresses as well, to treat jute, which is also made for, for sort of female clothing, that was okay. So, again, it's kind of saying if, if it's a necessity, it's okay. But if it's a luxury, we shouldn't be killing animals for that. And then someone else says, you know, I think it's, it's all right to wear ostrich feathers, um, and it's actually better to wear ostrich feathers than to wear silk, because for silk, you have to kill the silkworm. But for ostrich feathers, you just pluck them. So you don't. So you get all these kind of issues coming out about the relative merits of killing or not different animals, the relative value of different products. And I think I thought this was all quite interesting, because when we look at sort of histories of conservation, we tend to look at it from quite a sort of masculine perspective. And I do in other parts of the book. You know, it's all about men thinking about hunting licenses and closed seasons and international treaties and, and all that kind of thing. But this is more from a consumer perspective so this is women kind of thinking about what's going to influence my consumer choices welfare matters but they're also worried about things like ideas about beauty and comfort and physical health and i think that's something that's perhaps been underlooked at in these these sort of discussions of of things such as as murderous millinery and perhaps generally the role of women as as trying to end this problem as well as causing it has been been under-researched no absolutely and i think it's also interesting to highlight from the perspective of as you said, right, causing you to reflect on your own choices now. These are still live debates, right? This is the sort of thing, reading it in the book, I was like, I could imagine this being on a blog, right? Someone going, hang on, well, I don't want to do this, but I'm not sure what the alternative is and people weighing in. So there's a lot of similarities, I think, between then and now in this sense. Definitely. I mean, for me, the thing that always makes me think about this is, you know, I'm I'm vegetarian, I don't eat um, animal products. But I also have a cat, as you know, and and she clearly does because cats, you know, require meat in their diet. And I do reflect upon this when I'm sort of standing in the supermarket, spending a lot longer choosing the cat's food because she's very fussy than than my own, and thinking, here I am, you know, on an aisle picking bits of meat and trying to tempt her to be pescatarian. But you know, you do feel these things, and I can't, you know, get around that really. And you know, she's a rescue cat, so it's, are you doing right? Are you doing wrong? And I, I guess, I suppose it's it's very easy. And you can apply this to concerns about things like climate change as well. It's very easy to point to people being hypocritical and, you know, doing things they shouldn't. And yeah, we're all hypocrites in various ways. I'll, I'll hold my hands up to that. But it's also not particularly helpful in some ways. You know, I think you need to equally recognise what people are doing that is, is good because it can just end up, you know, pointing to like inconsistencies. And we're all pretty inconsistent. You know, how we treat pets, how we treat farm animals. You know, we, we try to do the right thing, but, you know, it's hard to be completely consistent. And it really resonated with me looking at these these earlier debates that actually even Victorian women were having these sorts, which maybe I wouldn't have, have guessed. Mm, no, absolutely. I had the same sort of response. If we then um, 
think about kind of the book overall, we, we've looked at kind of some of the animals you examine in more detail. But if we zoom out and look at kind of all of them together, what were some of the most significant common factors that you found um, across these different animals, the different kinds of debates? What were some of the things that were the most similar? That's a good question. And I think there's a few ways we can kind of draw parallels and, and look at similarities. So, so one, I suppose, is just the sort of global origins of all these commodities. They're coming from different places, but notably in this period, a lot of them are ending up in, in London, which is at the centre of lots of imperial trade networks. So whether it's kind of egret feathers that are coming from the Everglades in Florida or the Llanos of Venezuela and then to auction houses in London, or whether it's um, things like perfumes, things like musk, which is being um, taken from musk deer in, in Sichuan and then sent by Chinese merchants in Shanghai to London, whether it's parrots being sort of collected in West Africa and sent to London and Liverpool, you have this kind of global dimension and, and London is very much at, at the centre of it. I think a second thing I'd flag is how important sort of new technologies are in, in pretty much all of these products in making them sort of possible and increasing their, their volume. So, you know, this might be things like refrigeration for meats. It might be new techniques for sort of dyeing fur. So seal skin only really becomes popular once there's a way of dyeing it other colours which happens in the 1870s. Um, similarly, ostrich um, farming is possible because of the invention of an ostrich egg incubator um, by a farmer in South Africa in the 1860s. And of course, you have things like steam shipping and railways bringing live and dead animals globally. And of course, sadly, more sort of powerful and accurate guns enable people to hunt these creatures too. So I think technology links all of these products. The other thing which obviously we've discussed is the predominance of women as, as consumers of a lot of these products. Uh, and women do get the blame for um, certainly murderous millery, but also the use of seal skin, um, various other products as well. Uh, as I've suggested, I don't think this is entirely fair because um, we know it's clear from sort of adverts that men are wearing seal skin jackets, things like billiard balls, um, which ivory is used to make, they are mostly used by men. So actually women aren't solely to blame, but they do get a lot of the, the criticism. And this is partly, I think, because they're seen as being sort of hypocritical. So there's, they often sort of join animal welfare movements, for instance, and campaign against things like vivisection, but they might do so while wearing a fur coat. So this kind of stuff all gets gets wrapped up into it. And, and women are very much at the forefront of, of the critique. Um, I think the other thing I would flag as well is that it's not just me kind of forging these connections between um, products. Um, but at the time, people sort of noted um, similarities and differences. So um, one writer, for example, explaining why um, she thought it was important to protect fur seals, makes an early, a comparison with another letter that a female had written about the killing of, of blue jays and other birds to, to put on a lady's ball dress. But she kind of thinks it's, it's worse to kill the seals because the killing probably takes a bit longer. And then someone else kind of draws a reverse comparison saying how it's, it's terrible people are keeping tortoises as pets because it's cruel um, and people should be worried about that just as the same people have been horrified um, by recitals of cruelty to seals. So people sort of do compare and, as I said, also suggest, like, is this product more cruel than that? Well, which, which one should I go to? And I guess, lastly... There are lots of commonalities in how people try to address um, population decline and, and cruelty. So amongst many of the products I've looked at, people are introducing things like closed seasons for seals, for elephants, wildlife sanctuaries, import and export bans on feathers or on ivory. Um, 
and also this idea which we touched on with the alpacas and the kangaroos of sort of relocating animals or perhaps domesticating them and sort of farming them as a means of conservation and this is something you see with with African elephants um, with ostriches um, with South American bicunias which are a kind of wild alpaca um, with egrets and, and even with fur seals although like I say most of this doesn't work it's only really the ostrich that is actually domesticated um, and I guess lastly as well the reason that a lot of animal products cease to be used is because you get sort of synthetic substitutes being created towards the end of, of the 19th century so things like chemical dyes replace um, cochineal which is a sort of beetle which was used for, for red dyes you get celluloid and plastic replacing ivory and more sort of synthetic fibres like nylon coming into play and, and synthetic perfumes as well to replace um, civet and musk so there's a lot of parallels between these products which I think make it worthwhile looking them at them as a whole actually and, and seeing how these different techniques were applied globally absolutely um and i think also that answer does a great job of kind of bringing together a bunch of the things we've been discussing and highlight to readers that there's many more details in the book if you've been intrigued by what you've heard there's definitely more to get into with the book itself um but that does take us to my final question for the interview uh this book came out in 2021 uh, obviously, with researchers, historians, there's always things we're intrigued by. So is there anything you've been working on since, anything you're working on currently, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Um, yeah, sure. So I've actually more or less finishing um, a book called Animals in World History, which is more of a synthesis, more of a textbook aimed at undergraduate students and sort of general readers, thinking about some of the themes I look at in um, Victims of Fashion, but also more widely about the consumption of animals, animals as labourers, companion animals, and how all of this has sort of changed over time. Um, it's a bit of a, obviously a big, slightly ambitious book, and I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't sort of been asked to do it, and I keep wondering if I'm covering the right things. Um, but it's also been quite an enjoyable sort of journey because it's it's given me the opportunity to read a lot of really great work, um, including by people who I know you've interviewed on, on this podcast before, looking at animals in different periods, different places, it might be China, it might be India, it might be Africa, places that I wouldn't perhaps normally get to read about and you know, reading some really interesting case studies. Um, so I'm just finishing up a section at the moment actually looking at invasive species and what people should do about them. And I'm looking at a case study looking at Pablo Escobar's escaped hippos in, in Colombia. So that's been quite quite interesting. And I've also got to write a bit about cats and ocarpies and cacapos and lots of other things. So it's it's been quite a fun book to write, albeit I'm quite apprehensive about, about the coverage of things. Uh, and I'm also just starting to work um, on a book um, um, called A Cultural History of Birds in, in the 19th Century, which will be an edited collection with some other hopefully wonderful people on, on board. Um, there'll be a few egrets and ostriches within that, I think, as well. So, so that's where I am with, with future projects. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds... I can see why it sounds intimidating, but also quite exciting. So Hopefully, hopefully. No, best of luck with that. And of course, uh, while you finish it up, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled Victims of Fashion, Animal Commodities in Victorian Britain, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Helen, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. It's been really, really enjoyable to chat with you about the book.